on this episode of Upon Further Review, Home Alone leads to the Hurt Locker Down Under, Simone says mental health break, and reporter Bennett Conlon discusses the UVA women's basketball shutdown and the ACC. Welcome back to Upon Further Review. Joining us now, he's the beat reporter for University of Virginia Basketball. Bennett Conlon, thank you for joining us this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We have quite a bizarro year, as I've uh, termed it, with uh, with Matt a few times. And the University of Virginia uh, has had some interesting news over the past couple of weeks. We contacted you a couple of weeks ago because the women's basketball program became the second program to declare and into the season. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the background? Because I had heard uh, that, and by, by the way, to folks who are listening, we did try to reach out to the, the SID and through the SID, University of Virginia Women's Basketball Program. They did decline the interview. Uh, but uh, thank you for joining us, Bennett, and give us a little background. Sure, yeah. So uh, the team had kind of struggled with depth actually before COVID, which was really interesting. So they uh, had a bunch of injuries and things like that. I believe a player had opted out as well. So, I mean, they had a game canceled in. I think it was December, early December, uh, because they only had six players available due to injuries. Um, so they were already dealing with some depth issues. And then they had about a COVID pause that lasted about a month. So they went from, I think it was December 13th to you know January 14th is the day, I believe they made that announcement that they were done with the season. So they went about a month without playing, missed games as they were dealing with COVID issues. And as you can imagine, any COVID issue when you've already got a lack of players in terms of injury issues, it's going to sort of be exacerbated and maybe hurt a little bit more. So they ended up making that decision to opt out of the season that they announced. And I don't think it was really a surprise to anyone who's been around the program or followed it. I think the health of the players is certainly important. And they were also, you know, you mentioned the, or I mentioned, I guess, the lack of depth that they had. Uh, I think that certainly played a role to begin with. And they were also, you know, they were 0-5. They had been struggling this year and I don't know if that's necessarily the reason they did it, but I think um, there certainly becomes a risk reward there. Do you want to continue this season knowing that you're kind of struggling and going through it and putting yourself at risk? I think if, you know, if they're five and zero in a top 10 team, is there a, a longer discussion about how long they're willing to wait and maybe put it out? I think so. Um, so I think that certainly played a role as well. Ben, and what's the view uh, throughout the ACC? Uh, and, you know, we already had Duke, opting out of its season uh just what's the sense among the various schools and athletic departments in the conference i mean is this being accepted is just you know we understand or or are there some uh is there a lot of irritation among uh, other league members and and how this affects the, the the structure of the season Yeah, I mean, it's definitely tough, but I think coaches and administrators have kind of gone in knowing it's not going to be a typical season. There's going to be changes and sort of stuff that you wouldn't expect in a normal year. So I think teams and coaches are accepting it pretty well and knowing that, you know, you just got to kind of roll with the punches. And I do think Duke making that decision made it a little bit easier for Virginia to make the same decision. I'm not sure UVA necessarily would have wanted to step out on that ledge and have been the first ACC team to do it. Um, so it helps a little bit when you've already got a conference member that's willing to do it. And from my understanding, it's pretty much everyone is okay with the idea that if a team decides internally that they don't want to take the risk the rest of the year and they opt out, everyone's just going to be fine with that and sort of move on. So you see Duke do it, and obviously it made sense for Virginia given the, given the situation. So 
not surprised to see the move and certainly made sense after that Duke decision. Bennett, has it, uh, from what you understand, has it been more player-driven, team-driven, or, or team medical staff-driven, or more coaching staff-driven, the decision to suspend the season for the year? I think it's probably a little bit of both. They haven't given a ton of insight on that, but my guess is that they've sort of discussed it as a group. I think you know, the longer it went on, the, the more likely it seemed that they would end up making a move here. Tina Thompson, someone who is uh, typically pretty invested in terms of discussing things with her team. So I'm guessing there were certainly long discussions there and sort of determining if it's worth it. They had really uh, gone above and beyond uh, with some of the protocols. So I think they were maybe a little surprised to have some COVID issues. Uh, they had really tried to break up into groups when they were doing stuff in the locker room, things like that. Uh, I know they had early in the season, they did some team bonding stuff where they would, I think they would have dinner inside the arena or different places, but they would do it in shifts almost where they would go as small groups within a team. So they really tried to limit as much as they could. And I think there's been a mental and physical toll there of, of playing these games without a lot of depth. The players have been worn down and some of them were sort of battling fatigue on the court. You've got the mental exhaustion on the court. I think it became just a little too much toward the end. Ben, there's a an impending change in the ACC with you know John Swafford going uh you know exiting and uh, Jim Phillips coming in. Uh, what what is the sense in the conference about uh, just the continuity of leadership and and if if that has affected the conference's response to COVID nineteen in any way? How how is that transition uh, a, a part of the story? If it's a part of the story at all, I don't think it's too much. Jim Phillips is someone who's been sort of in the college administrator ranks for a really long time, so he's certainly experienced and talented. And Swafford has basically said, you know, I'll let him take over whenever he's ready and sort of do that transition. But I'm here for him you know, for as long as he needs in terms of, of uh, speaking to him and giving him advice, things like that. So I don't think it's a huge thing, especially since a lot of these protocols and, and things were set uh, before Phillips was really playing a big role or, or sort of shifting into the role of the ACC. So I think you've got enough there that they came up with these medical protocols. Everyone was sort of aware that, you know, things might not go great, as, especially as you get into the winter months and some tougher issues with outbreaks and things like that. So I don't think it's affected the response too much. I think it's certainly a, a challenging time for any conference to make a transition, but I think we've done a nice job with it so far. Bennett, you're uh, from James Madison, but you've been covering uh, UVA. Obviously, two campuses that aren't too far apart. You're all in that uh, DMV, Washington, Virginia, Maryland area. Have the campuses sort of been on the same page, both athletically and in terms of in-person versus online learning? Has there been sort of consistency or have they been sort of, there's a lot more universities in that area than they are, say, on the, in most places on the West Coast, uh, very heavily concentrated. How has that been, has there been coordination amongst the universities there and has UVA been more online uh, or more in-person or sort of a hybrid of both? And are they sort of, is there sort of consistency between most of the schools in that area? Yeah, so it's interesting. So you look at JMU and UVA, they seem like they've almost gone on completely opposite tracks with some things. In the fall, uh, both schools offered some online um, classes and things like that. But you know, UVA, I think, had a little more success with some of the in-person stuff. JMU kind of came in and, and had some issues. I think they ran out of quarantine beds pretty quickly and sent some people home uh, after a short period there the fall semester. UVA didn't have that same level 
of problems. They did a little, UVA had significantly more quarantine beds is, is my understanding as well. So they were able to do that a little more effectively. And then you look at these two teams played in women's basketball, JMU was able to beat UVA early in the season. JMU still pushing along. They've got a game, we're recording this on a Tuesday, they've got a game Tuesday at 1 o'clock. So they're still playing, you know, we're an hour away, whereas uh, UVA has decided not to play. So it's certainly been a, a differing comparison there in terms of how they're doing things and, and the testing and, and sort of some of the different results, especially uh, athletically. You know, Bennett, uh, I don't have to tell you that um, in the ACC, the ACC basketball tournament uh, is, is a really, really big deal. You know, it's the original conference tournament. And yet in a pandemic, uh, the question of conference tournaments, men and women, uh, is a real point of concern right now in terms of, you know, gathering people, gathering players and coaches and staff at, at one setting before the NCAA tournament, their COVID-19 risks associated with that. Um, what is there an emerging sense within the ACC that, you know, as much as we love our, you know, it's, it's our baby, you know, the conference tournament, the original, uh, as much as we love it, that this year might not be a year in which to continue with that. What is the situation on the ground in the conference? It's something that's certainly worth monitoring, especially you look at some of these teams that, that could be shoe-ins for the NCAA tournament. I think the men's side, I don't know if it's exactly the same for the women's or not. I guess it would be. I think they're, the NCAA tournament wants you to have seven days where you test on each day and have negative tests on all those before going into that Indianapolis bubble for the men. You know, If you're a Virginia or a Louisville or any of these teams that are at the Florida State at the top of the conference, I think you would consider skipping the conference tournament because you're a shoe-in for the NCAA tournament. You're certainly trying to win a national championship probably more than you want a conference championship. So I think there's that increased risk of of getting the virus if you do play in the conference tournament. You've got the travel and things like that. You're going up against different teams. Maybe one of them has it and they you know don't have a positive test one day, have it the next, and then that puts you in jeopardy of playing in the NCAA tournament. So some of the ACC men's basketball coaches earlier this week had had mentioned that, you know, right now they're focused on their games this week and they're focused on what they're going to do today in practice and all that stuff. But a couple of coaches, including Louisville's Chris Mack, had said, yeah, I think you, of course you consider it if you're in that position to, to be a lock for the NCAA tournament. That's certainly where everybody wants to be. And if you can avoid extra exposure to the virus, you might do it. You might do it by skipping out on that tournament. So still pretty early in terms of what might happen there. I think you could also see the other page where if you're a bubble team, I think you want to play those games desperately so that you can actually get into the tournament. So it's going to be interesting to see, but I would not be surprised if some of these teams across the nation that are, you know, top 15, top 20 caliber teams wouldn't be surprised if they said, uh, we're going to pass on this so that we can play in the NCAA tournament. Bennett, with the ACC having the flagship heritage of being the Glamour Conference, particularly over the past 40 or 50 years for the most part, uh, along with the Big East and the Big Ten to a lesser extent, but obviously the ACC with the most national championships and uh, the most blue blood programs, it's from what I'm hearing that there are going to be some schools that are uh, that you, you've already said that that are, that are actually there's some rumblings about some teams opting out. Is there a tipping point? after which there may not be a tournament or are they going to have the tournament regardless from what you can, from what you can surmise and teams are just going to get to decide both on the men's and women's side to side uh, 
uh, what's best for them, starting with the men's side? My guess is it might be a little team to team, but I think there's probably a certain number. I mean, if you're hosting something and you can't have a lot of fans, I don't know if the, the revenue aspect is still even there. So there certainly could be a possibility of them going away from the conference tournament. It's interesting because if you do have those teams that are that want those games to get into the NCAA tournament, maybe they try to do that. The other thing you could do is instead of potentially having the conference tournament is you could look in and try to make up some of these games. Because right now they're trying to play a 20-game conference slate and I don't know if any of the teams are really going to be able to do that with the amount of postponements. I think UVA already has three games, the men's team, that, that it needs to make up. Um, and you're certainly running out of time. I think there's one weekend toward the end of February, which it seems like it'll make sense to make up the Virginia Tech game, but they've still got a game against Wake Forest. They've still got a game against NC State that they have to make up. And that's assuming that none of the other games will get postponed, and, and realistically some of those will. So you've know, got some some options in terms of what they can do logistically. But yeah, I wouldn't be shocked if some of these power five leagues ended up going away with the conference tournament. It kind of depends on, on how things go and what the individual teams and schools decide. But if you're a league with a bunch of teams that are kind of shoe-ins to get the into the NCAA tournament, you might decide that you'd rather just have them there than playing this conference tournament in a certain location where everyone has to travel to. And there's still, you know, extremely limited attendance. Bennett, you know, one of the things that I constantly uh, encounter when I talk to anyone in the college sports business is that, you know, we just got to get through this this season more broadly, this particular college sports cycle, you know, just get through these seasons and then we'll figure out the bigger logistical and budgetary challenges that await on the other side of the pandemic or, or not necessarily on the other side of the pandemic, but just as the pandemic changes and, and as the it's, it's a little bit easier to, to see the, the larger landscape once the stresses of this particular year fade away. Nevertheless, you know, after, you know, quote unquote, landing the plane, just getting through this cycle, you know, have, have you talked to people about, you know, how, the business of college sports is going to change on the other side of the pandemic. And if some larger scale practices, you know, are going to emerge that we don't see now, but it's going to be part of the new world of college sports on the other side of the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting. I think with UVA and the power five level, there will certainly be some, some shifting. I mean, you've seen some schools already that have kind of cut Olympic sports or, or done things like that for budgetary reasons. So there's certainly a chance of that sort of thing happening, depending on uh, what's going on in each school. I think Virginia is kind of in that boat where, yeah, they'll they'll try to adjust a little bit once they're able to hopefully get through the NCAA tournament and, and get the revenue from that, and all the schools are able to benefit. I think on the mid-major level, it's it's particularly fascinating. I know uh, JMU and some of those other schools, William and Mary, Richmond, that are sort of in the the area near UVA. Uh, there's definitely talks about does it make sense for them to to shift leagues or anything like that? Are there certain things they need to do um, in terms of geographic stuff where you want to be in a league where there's less travel so that you're spending less in terms of playing games and, and maybe fewer hotel expenses or flights or things like that? So it's definitely going to change it for, for pretty much everyone. I think you've got to find ways to, to cut costs in, in certain ways and maybe be creative with it. I know some schools have opted uh, to cut sports and things like that or, or furlough or layoff staffers, which is pretty much in play for everyone. I guess it depends what happens here in the coming months. And obviously, how soon are you able to get fans back in the stands for some of these games? Because it's certainly been 
a slow moving March at this point. You're coming up on, you know, close to a year without fans at events. And uh, it's certainly an impact for any school involved. Matt, that's all I got. Um, do you have anything else? Sure. Um, Bennett, what, what about the vaccine rollout as it applies to the ACC and uh, just, you know, what this might look like in terms of uh, heading into well, spring sports for one, but more importantly for, you know, the next college sports cycle as we get into August and September? Yeah, I think everyone's sort of under the assumption that if the rollout can go decently well, that things will look a lot better toward that fall season. So I think there's certainly some hope there. I mean, you hear from some of the ACC men's basketball coaches just because they've, you know, they've been doing it for so long and they're kind of up there in age that they've actually gotten their first dose of the vaccine. I think uh, Coach K at Duke and then Jim Laranega at Miami, I want to say early February, I think they're about a week away from their second dose, actually. So some good signs there. I think that's, that's certainly good. And you hopefully can get that going. And yeah, I think the administrators uh, at UVA and other ACC schools feel confident that there's a chance that things could be significantly better in the fall, which is sort of, I think, what everyone's hoping, that they're able to at least up attendance significantly in the fall, depending on how the rollout goes. And still early in that, so I think there's a long time to sort of adjust and see how things go. But there's definitely optimism and hope, I would say, more so than there had been previously. And let me let me close out with this, Bennett. Um, and thanks so much for for joining us. Um, you know, obviously a ton of bad news and a ton of just you know very alarming negative news in throughout the pandemic. Have you had a favorite pandemic story? You know, a, a, just a a ray of light piercing through the darkness. You know, a, a story that uh, has given you personally some confidence, some uplift, a, a sense of you know, that we, we, we really need this in the midst of the pandemic. I think during the early months of, of quarantine, when there was uh, the social justice movements were really at large and the UVA student athletes, to me, stood out with just how willing they were to use their platforms and use their voices and also to speak to the media and talk to us about you know, why they were doing certain things and, and how they were doing it and what it meant to them. I think that meant a lot. And I think it was cool for those those months when there weren't sports. Obviously, it's challenging if you're at a daily newspaper like I am to you know go multiple months without a sporting event. In some ways, it was extremely challenging. But it was also really fun to talk to athletes about their interests and what they cared about and sort of how they were making impacts in the world outside of sports. So I think to me, that was sort of that ray of light was just talking to these people about things they cared about, were passionate about off the field and off the court. And UVA student-athletes certainly did a, a really nice job to try to make an impact. There were a few athletes who had sort of created um, social media accounts to try to get the word out about social justice initiatives, and there were others who were went to protests and did things like that. So that really stood out to me is just the athletes who are willing to, to take a stand for things they believed in outside of sports. That's certainly the stories and, and sort of the conversations that I enjoyed the most over the last few months. He's Bennett Collin from the UVA Daily Progress. Bennett, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on.
Welcome back to Upon Further Review. I'm Ty Henry. And I'm Matt Zanuck. Matt, we've had a lot of uh, meat on the bone. We've had the Australian Open. We're coming down to it and getting close to NCAA tournament time. And, of course, we're getting close to the All-Star break. But all things are determined by COVID and the fluctuating situation, not just in the United States, worldwide. Uh, But I'd like to go back a little bit to what happened at the Australian Open. As you know, we had a 14-day quarantine as per per, uh, Australian protocols, but there was a lot of confusion in terms of what were the players told and what was their level of what was their level of expectation coming into Australia and the various states. Adelaide, of course, is in one state. Melbourne is in another. And so there was a group of players, obviously, that uh, were in Adelaide that were able to quarantine for 14 days with five hours of practice and another group in Melbourne that were not. And as we heard from John Millman a couple of months beforehand, there could be some issues if somebody is test positive on one of those planes. And at the outset, when the players were kvetching people, search like uh, uh, Serrano Churstay, uh, Benoit Pair, uh, I believe it was um, Novak Djokovic had some concerns about the lesser players uh, not getting the same amount of treatment or the same amount of practice time and having discrepancy in practice time. Uh, Yulia Putin Silva and Alze Cornet. And in response, uh, the media had a had a field day. But uh, what we saw over the course of the tournament, which was won by Novak Djokovic and on the women's side, Naomi Osaka, was a rash of injuries that, uh, simply put, uh, have a lot to do with emotions that are unnatural and thus need to be practiced on a regular basis prior to undertaking uh, such a big event. So let's give some of the names. Um, Salvatore Caruso fell down and hurt his hurt his leg against uh, uh, against Fabio Fanini. Was able to complete the match. Venus Williams also had a serious turn of her legs. But uh, the most concerning things were the ab and the core injuries. Novak Djokovic, of course. Uh, Sasha Zvera, Marco Berrettini had to pull out. So did Joanna Kanta. Uh, Katarina Mukova played in the Australian Open, but she had to pull out of the Gypsum uh, uh, tournament right before. Casper uh, Ruud had to pull out. Uh, and of course, Victoria Azarenka and Angelique Kerber had some issues as well, and they were they were bumped uh, early on. Benoit Perra pointed out he lost. Uh, Adelaide players had a positive on their plane as well, but there were blood samples taken in Adelaide, which the players that were flying into Melbourne did not have the benefit of. And obviously, it wasn't just hindsight. Uh, I've had some strong opinions about this. But, uh, you know, what we saw, uh, I think you would kind of agree with me that the best solution, since you're inviting these guest workers in to boost your economy and to put on an event, you want them to be at their best. Let's go ahead and since everything's in flux anyway, put the tournament back a couple of weeks. Allowed him to practice what is a oh oh I forgot Grigor Dimitrov I watched his match as well I don't know if you got to saw that but that was actually horrifying to watch him have to suffer through those back spasms um, and um, put in tournament back obviously you put six tournaments in, on in one week why not put those back a couple of weeks absolutely and I think that was a real learning experience um, you know in the uh, at the at the U.S. Open. And Roland Garros, there weren't these same hard lockdowns the way the Victorian government 
and Australia had. And so it, it was a real eye opener, I think, for the, the, the both tours that, you know, it's not, it, it, you know, players might uh, be physically fresh, you know, they aren't worn down, but they also have to have their bodies, you know, in motion, they have to have a certain degree of rhythm, they have, a, have to have a certain degree of activity. And if they're stagnant, as the ones in hard lockdown were just before Australia. And then you ask them to immediately ramp up and play uh, tour level tennis, grand slam tennis. Yeah. You're going to do some things to the body. It's going to be an abrupt transition. And so the, the injuries flowed from it. So yes, the, the, to, to answer your question very briefly. Yes. With, with the, with the tour structure and flux, you know, there's no Indian Wells in early March to worry about, after the Australian Open, so there were there there was there was like a, at least a one week, if not a two week period of, of flex time. We could at least say one week, you know, before this uh, Rotterdam Doha week, which is you know kind of important on, on tour. There was at least I think one flex week to a lot to um, various players at the very least, so that all of them could have practiced leading into the tournament. So you know, as we go forward before the end of the pandemic. Uh, that's definitely something that future tournaments later this year need to take into into uh, under advisement. So let's say um, you know France hasn't uh, fully licked COVID nineteen and has to employ a lockdown. You know, I would say that you know it would be if we get into a similar situation uh, that pushing back Roland Garros a week uh, would seem to be in order. And that way, you know, if you push it back one week, you still have two weeks between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. And of course that was the long standing gap between those two tournaments through 2014. That didn't change. The two week gap didn't become a three week gap until 2015. Um, So, you know, the idea that two weeks between Roland Garros and Wimbledon is a non-starter that's, you know, doesn't hold much water. So we can have a two week break between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. If that, if that results from pushing back Roland Garros one week to give practice time equity uh, and equality uh, to all the players on tour. So that is definitely something important. Wimbledon, I think, is an even is in an even better position uh, to pu- to push itself back a week or two because, of course, the the two three weeks after Wimbledon, there's nothing especially uh, significant happening. I mean, there might be the Tokyo Olympics, but you know we don't know if those are going to happen. Um, you know, so, I, you know, it, it's definitely something for Roland Garros and Wimbledon in particular uh, to focus on this year, making sure all players do get a chance to practice if there are lockdown complications. And I will say as we close this topic out that I've been very vocal in one on one discussions with you and even a couple of times on Twitter. Uh, there are some personalities who shall remain nameless on ESPN and others. Um, some, you know, we have this problem in political media that uh, has sort of trickled down in the sports media where if someone has had a misstep in the past, instead of addressing what they specifically have to say in its merits, on its merits at the time, we go back to what to their missteps in the past as if their missteps diminish what they're saying instead of taking them in good faith and what they're and what they're proposing. Djokovic, he had a misstep last year with the Adria tour and he owned up to it catching COVID himself, although not with a high viral load. So he didn't get particularly sick like a lot of the guys did. Um, but he did make a point that, look, uh, we need several hours worth of we need this amount of time to tune our bodies properly 
And moving on to the next, uh, to a similar topic, um, along these same lines, Djokovic and some of the other players on the ATP have proposed sort of a bubble type uh, 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 situation where much like at the U.S. Open tournament, uh, U.S. Open series last fall, where they played uh, the Western and Southern Open and the U.S. Open. So there is precedent at the same location in consecutive weeks. And of course, uh, we saw with Australia, we, they played, they were able to come up with six tournaments on the fly. Uh, Sasha Zverev said, you know, there's, we're having lockdowns uh, depending on where you're going or limited movement. So you can't have full tournaments. We don't ha- you cannot have a, a moving tour uh, right now uh, from country to country on a weekly basis. It's just not plausible. So let's have two to three weeks. Up to four weeks in some in certain areas. I mean, some of these places can hold. Let's just say you have uh, the French Open at Roland Garros, but you may have um, four or five other tournaments at either Spain, uh, one of the uh, what's the, the 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 or Barcelona the Barcelona facility, which is which is equipped to hold several several tournaments at a time, um, and then move over to Roland Garros or play them all at Roland Garros. Or have a couple of mini bubbles at the All England Club and maybe one at Queen's Club. I think it makes a whole lot of sense because with things changing and things in flux and we're going to have, uh, it's already started with the new variants, particularly two or three. One is called, oddly enough, uh, the, the UK variant, which is more transmissible. Uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of changes and a lot of flux. And I think flexibility is important. And I like the idea of a... Uh, of, of multiple bubbles around the tours. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're going to talk about college basketball later in the show, but we might as well just mention it right now. The NCAA tournament is going to be played in a set of, clo- of cities and, and localities that are going to be close to each other. Indianapolis, Indiana, West Lafayette, um, uh, Bloomington, you know, the ver- various localities in a small area within the same state. So within the same jurisdiction. So I think that that's a model for what tennis is in position to do. Uh, and like if Roland Garros being in in Paris, maybe you move uh, Madrid or Rome to uh, Lyon or to Strasbourg or other French cities that put up tournaments um, you know, there, there is a, there is an opportunity to put uh, a, a collection of tournaments within like a four or five week period in the same country so that you have the same jurisdiction. You're not going to have different localities or different uh, nations with different sets of lockdown policies. And if you can streamline them, you know, obviously, um, if you, the Mutua Madrid Open wants uh, its television money. It's going to be still be hard to get, you know, a lot of fans in the stands. Uh, but it seems as though if the if, as long as the tournaments pocket their TV money, which really that was the point of playing the U.S. Open and Roland Garros last year, um, you know, one would think that you know these tournaments, you know, they shouldn't expect to make their normal profit. Uh, as long as the pandemic is still with us in 2021, I think uh, it, it's it's a pretty widespread belief that you know we're not going to have quote unquote normal tennis with you know regular crowds until 2022 at the earliest. Um, it's it's ridiculous to expect normal crowds on a normal scale 
uh, in a normal environment at any point in 2021. There are just too many variables in the air and too many problems with global distribution of the vaccine. Um, that so you know we should just operate under the assumption that you know as long as these tournaments get their t- television money, that's enough. So if it means moving Madrid to somewhere else in France where they have a clay court, well then that that doesn't seem like too much of a price to pay. And you get all the athletes in the same country so that you can have streamlined policies and a better sense of what to expect from everyone instead of jumping from one nation to another. Boy, that is going to be such a headache, uh, assuming it happens. You know, hopscotching from Madrid to Rome and other places in between and before Roland Garros, man, that, yeah, it, it invites all sorts of complications. So, hey, we all want normal sports back, but we have just have to face it. For 2021, we're still not going to have normal sports. That's going to uh, require innovative thinking and being able to do things outside the box one, for one more year. Variables in the air. I like that. Uh, nice little pun there, Matt. Uh, you like you, you helped me keep my game up on uh, on the pun tip. But uh, uh, you know, along those same lines, you were just talking about uh, the tournaments and the television money. And obviously, if you talk about the majors and some of the other uh, non-majors that are a little bit satellite based, uh, well, not satellite based, but I would say the the tournaments that are just below majors uh, but have a lot. Of cachet like Doha, like uh, Indian Wells, although it's not going to be played this year in Miami, they can get a lot of uh, their their what we call the, their their revenue their primary revenue stream is going to be from television, but the regular tours still make a lot of money contingent on what the gate is uh, and all the downstream effects um, uh, that are on that that come from on-site revenue streams from parking to concessions to food to on-site sponsorships, which are only uh, uh, of any value if there are people walking around the grounds. That's all gone now. And so that brings me to what the ATP announced today is that they're going to have a, uh, a drop in prize money at the different tournaments. So all these things seem to come together and seem to suggest that maybe the bubble is going to be the right thing to do uh, coming up pretty soon because if you're not going to have a traveling tour, you're not going to have fans because you're not going to have the ga- you're not going to have the gate because you have the fans, and thus you're going to have less prize money. Then why put the wear and tear that comes from having to travel, and also the psychological wear and tear of am I going to be able to cross this border? Am I going to be able to go from Rotterdam to uh, to Stuttgart? And am I going to be able to go from Stuttgart to Barcelona and from Barcelona to Paris? Am I going to bring be able to bring my my physio with me, my coach with me, and all these different variables and all these moving parts of having an international tour? Well, you're getting into the business of tennis, which is a perfectly good thing to do in in these pandemic times. You know, when we're not having the full regular calendar of tour events, so that you know that provides more downtime and more time for the leaders in the sport to think about. You know, how do we create a a not just a pandemic tour, but a post-pandemic reality for tennis. And so if we're going to focus on the business of tennis and the dollars of tennis during the pandemic and after the pandemic, Ty, the one thing I keep going back to is that the winners of major championships, year-end championships, the, the various prestigious tournaments, you know, if we give them $2 million for winning one of those prestigious championships instead of $3.5 million, is you know is that 
an injustice to the, the elite players of our sport that you get paid $2 million for winning uh, a, a supremely important tournament. I think that, you know, tennis, if, if, if there was just one relatively conceptually easy fix, I say conceptually because that's different from the actual politics of it, you know, would Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, uh, and then on the women's side, Serena and Halep and, uh, and, and all the rest, you know, would they be willing to give up, you know, a million dollars off their uh, Grand Slam championship winner's checks? You know, I, I doubt it. But like if we're looking for a short term manageable solution and answer to the business of tennis and making sure that the, you know, kind of the, the like a top 40 player down to a top 100 player down to a top 300 player. If we want to have more people being able to have a sustainable future in the sport, um, then the solution is just to lop off a million dollars from championship winners checks and redistribute that $1 million uh, down to the lower reaches of both tours and into the challengers and, and, and all those tournaments that that is a way to, uh, you know, you, you, we, the, the purses wouldn't the, would stay the same or maybe they would go down slightly, but just lopping off the championship checks at the top would give, you know, the, just your average working class tennis player, you know, number 80, number 150, number 225, a, a much fatter paycheck in exchange for all the toil and the labor. Hasn't that been happening? Hasn't that really been happening? Because uh, I think Federer and – and as we've said, the working as we've always seen, the, the the conditions of the working class player are contingent upon whether the top players take interest. So uh, a guy like LeBron James is going to lobby in union negotiations for uh, that guy on the twelfth uh, at the end of the bench, that twelfth guy, uh, to get a veterans minimum. Well, well, Ty. I mean, the 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 leading players, Federer, Djokovic, Nadal. Uh, you know, they've they've certainly worked behind the scenes yes. to make yes. sure that the tours pay first round losers at slams. Uh, you know, more. Yes. That, you know, first round, second round checks have grown. Yes, that's undeniably good. But you're not seeing the championship prizes go down. They have continued to go up. And so I, I think if tennis is serious about sustaining careers during the pandemic and after the pandemic and giving just compensation for, you know, players who, you know, outside the top 50, 60, you're not traveling with an entourage or a large support system. You can't really afford it. You can't put all those pieces together the way the very best players can. Uh, if we're going to make this worth their while for players outside the top 50, 60, 70, that the most immediate answer is just at all the big tournaments, take away a million from the championship check and you distribute it down. Are you talking about proposing that for just this year or, or until COVID abates? Or are you, ta are you talking about over, over the long term? Because my question there would be is one thing about uh, about tennis is that you get your worth as a player more from endorsements. And so the guys like Serena and the gal guys like uh, like like Djokovic and the gals like Serena and, and Osaka who have those 30 40 million dollars in endorsement money that won't bother them as much but the great thing about tennis is uh once the draw is set politics don't affect it and so a guy like um uh Karatsev or Jennifer Brady can get to a final and that one or two million dollars is going to be a lot for them where it wouldn't be uh for the for, for, for the other players 
Yeah. So, you know, notice that I'm focusing on championship checks. Like I'm not focusing on quarterfinal or semifinal checks. It's really just the championship because that that's where the biggest prize allocation is. It's such a huge right. allotment, three, three to three point five for, I think, at least three of the four majors, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and, uh, you know, the, the the runner up gets, I think, like, you know, one point seven. I mean, that that's. You know that is generous compensation. I don't think it's. I, I don't think it's uh, living in a, an irrational world uh, to say that that's reasonable. I mean, I don't think anyone's getting stiffed if they're getting like one point five to one point seven million for being a runner-up at a major. That that seems pretty like a you know a substantial compensation. Um, no matter what counter arguments might be made about market value. But to to answer your question more directly, Ty, I think that you know. We don't know what the future brings. We don't know what the what it's going to the tours are going to be like in 2023, 24. So let's operate from just from that starting point that just now in the pandemic, justifying the rigors of travel in this uncertain public global public health situation. Yeah, let's not commit to a long-term policy shift, but let's let's experiment with this. And I think the pandemic is a time to experiment in certain kinds of ways. And I think that the redistribution of prize money at big tournaments, really, it's a good time to try it out and give it a trial run. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. We also have to factor in for the long term, if we're talking about it, uh, the the various tax structures in various countries uh, moving from place to place and getting double tax, but definitely uh, for the for, for the first year, that's a definitely reasonable thing to act to, to, to evaluate. Moving on to as we we alluded to briefly uh, about the situation going on with the NCAA tournament, you follow college basketball. Uh, you're a reporter for Trojans Wire, so you've been on this. You've been you've been following this very very closely as we get close to conference tournaments, and by the time this drops, conference tournaments will be in full swing. Uh, you had made the suggestion that because of certain contingency plans that the NCAA has uh, d- that plans to deploy or has in their reserve, that it might not be a good idea to forego, might not be a bad idea to forego conference tournaments. Tell us what the NCAA is doing and give us your rationale. Well, I mean, the college basketball is basically pushing ahead with conference tournaments. And, you know, it's not surprising because they want that fat TV money. Uh, They want the spectacle of tournament basketball instead of making up regular season games. So, you know, that that is the the short answer there. I'm particularly concerned, Ty, about this NCAA tournament policy that, you know, if if a team test positive has enough positive tests, well, okay, it's done. It's out and it's going to be replaced by another team. What? You know, are are, are we just going to just try to cram these things through so quickly that we don't give a team a week? And, you know, what this gets down to, Ty, let's let's just be honest. Again, it's about the money. It's about the television. What this gets down to is we can't have Jim Nance, uh, you know, be inconvenienced at CBS. We can't have the the final four pushed back a week into Masters weekend because we need to cater to Jim Nance and CBS. And I mean, you know, that's how the world works. It doesn't mean it's how it should work. Uh, the idea that, you know, if you test, if a, if a college basketball team tests positive in the days right before an NCAA tournament game and boop, poof, it's done. I mean, what happened, you know, if this happens to a number one or a number two seed, oh my God, you know, that is going to just going to be a huge controversy all because we're not willing to wait an extra week for a COVID-19 situation on one or two teams 
to clear up. You know, the uh, the current urgent situation in college basketball is the Virginia Tech Hokies. Virginia Tech has barely played the past three or four weeks, played uh, two games, I believe, maybe three in the past four weeks, and is back on a COVID-19 pause, is not playing either of its two scheduled ACC games this week. So that brings up a possible ACC tournament co- uh, complication with the Hokies. You know, if, if they're out, th- that means you're taking out a top four seed. That means that another team gets a double buy top, you know, uh, due to being a top four seed. Uh, and that's going to change the matchups. And with multiple ACC teams on the bubble, Georgia Tech, North Carolina, Duke, uh, you know, varying degrees of bubble difficulty, but they're all they all are on the bubble. Um, you know that that's going to influence how the bracket is revealed on Selection Sunday. So it, it, it all seems to be much like college football that there was such an insistent on an insistence on quote unquote landing the plane. You know, we got to land this plane. We got to get it done sooner rather than later. And you know, college football got lucky, especially in that, you know, Dabo Swinney had COVID-19. So if Clemson had beaten Ohio State, <laughs> he would not have coached against Alabama in the national championship game. So so college football dodged a huge bullet there, but it was connected to this idea of we got to land the plane sooner rather than later. And it seems as though college basketball is doing the same thing. And, you know, I, I, in a logical world, it shouldn't be life or death uh, that you have to finish the tournament on your normal schedule with the final four being in the first week of April, you know, no one gets hurt if you wait two weeks. And I mean, that, that applied to the Australian open it applies to other signature tournaments. It applied to the super bowl as well. And the, you know, the NFL really did not treat all teams equally. Like it did not treat the Denver Broncos, you know, with that three quarterback prohibition against the new Orleans saints, it did not treat the Broncos the same way as the Baltimore Ravens, you know, who had all these COVID-19 complications, but were still allowed to play with their full menu of players on a Tuesday and on a Wednesday. Uh, it was not equal treatment throughout. And people are going to point out per- certain particularities, but we, we can all uh, agree that, you know, a team that was uh, playoff worthy uh, and a team that was out of the playoffs, there were different standards applied. There, there's, there is no question about it. And so just all the sports, the NBA is another example. They just all seem to be pell-mell on getting things done quickly rather than saying, hey, if, it, if things are three or four weeks behind schedule, hey, it's no problem. This is a health crisis. We're in no rush. But you saw the NBA start right before Christmas, and you can see that the Miami Heat and Los Angeles Lakers have both – dealt with all sorts of injury problems and disruptions. And that is, is definitely connected to the very short two month off season uh, those teams had. And then with major league baseball, you know, Hey, we're going to, we might get, you know, a vast majority of Americans vaccinated by the end of May. Why wouldn't major league baseball wait several weeks so that it's, it can start its season later in the spring and it can get, a much larger percentage of its games attended by fans who have gotten two doses. But no, Major League Baseball is going to just run, run it through normally, you know, do it, do it sooner. Uh, uh, delays just seem to freak out these sports leagues and sports entity, entities more than anything else. And yet in a pandemic, gosh, isn't that the first thing you should be thinking of that, you know, we don't have to do things in the normal way, but all the sports leagues seem to want to. 
Well, I was looking at you. You brought up the NBA for a second, and they announced the lineup of the dunk contest. And the first thought that came to mind is this is madness having an NBA All Star game during a pandemic because you're not going to have fans. Even Keisha uh, Bottoms, the mayor of Atlanta, says, "Don't come down here." Uh, and I mean, are, are, are you going to watch a slam dunk contest? That's part of the electricity that you get from the fans. Uh, it, it, it is so very important, but. Uh, getting back to college basketball, I, uh, a couple of uh, uh, points uh, to, to, to tie a bow on this. Uh, there have been some chatter about certain teams that aren't necessarily on the bubble pulling out of conference tournaments. I want you ad- to, ad- to address that. And has that died down? And second, uh, it's interesting that you brought up what if a, what if a top seed uh, has COVID issues? Uh, we've had such a bizarre year of misfit uh, sports where – uh, we've never had a year where so many blue blood programs, Kansas, North Carolina, Duke, and Kentucky, are absolutely ghastly and substandard historically for their uh, for their programs. Um, maybe obviously would uh, obviously would not be a, a great thing to have any number one seed, but a number one seed being Gonzaga and having to drop out is going to cause far much of an outcry and be and be less of a hit to CBS's bottom line than if that was Duke or if that was Kentucky or if that was North Carolina being a top seed and having to drop out. Yeah, it's a fascinating point with the Blue Bloods being the ones who are struggling and are on the bubble and the non-traditional uh, television schools. Now, now I, won't, I won't say non-traditional basketball schools, but non-traditional TV magnet schools. Right. National followings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's an inversion of what's normal. So that that is a very interesting point. Uh, you know, the 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 main thing in terms of, uh, you know, the the shape of the NCAA tournament is that, you know, Duke, North Carolina, both being on the bubble. I mean, it, it seems likely that, you know, if, as long as those those teams give the committee at least some reason to include them, that the committee is going to put them in over far more deserving teams. Uh, especially Duke, since uh, North Carolina is probably on the good side of the bubble now. Duke is definitely on the bad side of the bubble, but you can just kind of feel it that the committee is just itching for a reason to not only put Duke in the tournament, but specifically to put Duke in one of those first four games so that you can have Duke playing an extra NCAA tournament game uh, with little competition. You know, the first four games are going to be going on without a lot of, uh, you know, it's just going to be – uh, one game being played in, in one time window, whereas on a first round, you know, round of 64 day, you have two or three games going on at the same time. So, you know, the NCAA is just itching to put Duke in the tournament. And, and it just brings up, again, the point of, you know, are, are, are all schools treated equally in all of this? Now, I realize that what I've just discussed with Duke, it's not really a COVID-19 thing so much as a selection and bracketology consideration, but nevertheless, it, it still falls under that larger basket of, are we really treating all entities, all competitors the same or not? I mean, and, and to just break away from sports for a bit, Ty, we can see how unequally Americans have been treated in the pandemic, depending on whether you are a member of the, of the corporate elite or whether you're a member of the working class, very different timelines, very different levels of speed and efficiency in terms of providing what you want in a pandemic. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really in flux now. Um, and uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens over the next several weeks. Uh, speaking of fans in the stands, I'm pulling up something now that was just announced uh, a 
few days ago that New Jersey will allow some fans to attend events with fewer with over 5,000 seats. So apparently there's going to be uh, 10% uh, capacity. And so fans will be able to attend things like New Jersey Devils games. Um, and in the fall, uh, presumably uh, football games. And also entertainment venues are going to be able to as many as 1,800 folks, 10% uh, or 1,700 folks, uh, if they have 5,000 or more uh, people. And they're going to be socially distanced if they are they bought this together as a group, then they'll be able to sit together. If they did not buy tickets as a group, they'll have to sit apart. And, of course, they're going to need to wear masks. Um, Governor Phil Murphy announced this on February uh, 22nd. I just wanted to get your feedback on that, Matt. Well, you know, we're, we're uh, living in a, in a context where, you know, Texas and Governor Greg Abbott have made the news for um, their – uh, mask mandate uh, adjustment. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the phrase that you're hearing a lot is spiking the ball on the 10 yard line. Uh, we could also call this a Deshaun Jackson, you know, uh, letting go of the ball on the two as you're running in and about to celebrate a touchdown, you know, as just, I, I understand the desire to get a significant number of, of fans in arenas we, you know, we should all just be focused on getting two doses into people. And for, you know, now with the Johnson and Johnson approval, that's a one shot vaccine. So my goodness, we should just be focused on getting people fully vaccinated as much as possible. And then we can deal with fans. I mean, that that to me, that just seems like the, the natural way to do things. And I go back to the NBA in particular because. You know, the NBA, if it had a normal length off season, four months, the NBA would have started in February. So, you know, the NBA season would have just started and it wouldn't be in a position to have a whole lot of fans. But with the progress made in vaccine distribution, getting shots into arms and bodies, you know, the NBA was in place to have an all-star break not in early March under the current schedule, but in the middle of May. And then maybe at the end of May, midway through your, your season, you know, that this is based on a mid-February start, uh, you would be able to have fans beginning to progressively return in significant numbers in June and July. You know, any fan with two doses gets in, or at least you could, you could certainly uh, – ramp up the number of, of two dose uh, attendees you could get. I, I mean, I, I don't know what the exact policy could be, but it would certainly be bet more than 5,000. I would say, you know, if you, if, if it's just two dose people into arenas. Um, and so you could be, these leagues, these sports leagues could make more money on the back end. You know, the first few months of a season, you take the hit because you're, you're wanting everybody to get vaccinated. But then once everybody does get vaccinated, you have the ability to put more fans in seats. And most of all, Ty, by the time your playoffs arrive, uh, you know, later in the year, you can get the maximum amount of people uh, into your arena. Maybe not a capacity crowd, but you're certainly looking at a much higher number uh, compared to if you're having a pl your playoffs in May, as the NBA is going to do to try to fit in its season before the Tokyo Olympics. So it just it just seems as though the cost benefit analysis has not been done very thoroughly by these leagues. You know, with Major League Baseball, 
you know, start start your season on Memorial Day. And for the first month or two, you won't have fans. But, you know, in September, October, November, you know, baseball is definitely on a, a given its place on the calendar. It, since this sport concludes later in the year, baseball is in a position to have a lot more fans uh, attend in the back end with vaccinations. But baseball's insistence on starting sooner and you know, the, the overall number of games with limited fans is going to be greater. The overall number of games with a potential to get a lot more fans is smaller. I just don't think it's been thought through very much. And just to clarify, what New Jersey's doing, it's going to be uh, if you have 5,000 or more capacity, you could have 10% capacity. So if you have 5,000 in capacity, you would have 500 people or more. And I'm willing to give a state more of the benefit of the doubt than the leagues um, for the very same reason you just uh, you just outlined, uh, because the state is dealing with a whole lot of different competing interests and uh, a governor's talking to the public health experts and there is liability to be um, uh, to 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 be incurred if you take the wrong uh, wrong if you take the wrong step. So, and these aren't just pro sports, but this is also entertainment venues, outdoor and indoor. And uh, um, we we will see how this uh, how this plays out. But maybe it's also a function of how New Jersey's handling the, the the pandemic, and also some of the travel restrictions that they may have, or quarantine uh, restrictions that they may have as well. Um, moving on to uh, the last issue, and um, we, we're, we're kind of double back to tennis here, and not just the proximate effects that we see, but also the tertiary and the downstream effects. We've alluded to them in previous episodes about uh, certain, like high school athletes and depression and not being able to play. Um, well, mental health issues also affect professional athletes, and Gio Simone a long-standing mainstay in the top 50 and for many years in the top 20, uh, a, a pivotal part of France's Davis Cup team that won just a few years ago, has decided to take a step away from the tour. Uh, he lost his straight sets in the first round to Stefano Tsitsipas, and he crashed out of the Montpellier Open against uh, Andre Dworkin um, in the first round. I'm sorry, Dennis Novak, I'm sorry, in the first round. And uh, here's his quote. Uh, with my heart not being there to travel and playing these conditions, I unfortunately have to take a break in order to preserve myself mentally. Hopefully my morale picks up as soon as possible. And in the same piece, uh, something I had not been aware of, uh, Andy Murray, who just played today his first ATP Tour event uh, since last year, um, said that he actually unfollowed uh, many of the players on tour on social media because he didn't want what was going on in Australia to show up in his feed because he wasn't able to make it. You remember he he had the uh, issues with COVID and also the travel restrictions. So he wasn't able to make it to Australia. And so that put him in a bad way to the point where he's unfollowing people because, look, I don't want to see it. So uh, I know that the ATP tour set up a 24-7 mental health support uh, helpline for their players last year. After setting up a, partion, uh, a partnership with Sporting Chance, the charity founded by former Arsenal defender Tony Adams. And, of course, you know, ATP is headquartered in London. Um, so I want to get your uh, get, get your assessment of that situation and how much mental health. You know, we like to talk about players being in it for the money, but um, when it comes down to it, 
um, these folks love to play for an audience. It really feeds their uh, their sense of purpose and their sense of self uh, to get that feedback. There's nothing like playing before a lot a live audience because at the end of the day, these guys are and these and these ladies are entertainers first and foremost. Well, and and you know, it's it's uh, a theater of competition, and competition is not, you know it's it's something that. An athlete does individually, but it you know it, it's a it's a group activity. I mean, you don't have competition without the person across the net. You don't have competition without an umpire. You don't have competition without a coach, without a support staff, uh, without tournament directors. You know, th- this is this is this is all human activity, and so that makes it all communal activity. So there's always a larger context. And you know, the main thing really is that we, we should not think, and I think, you know, most fans get it, but some fans will still think, oh, you know, he quit, you know, Joe Simone quit, or, you know, he's not tough enough. And we just, we need to, you know, we, hopefully the pandemic will be a clarifying and helpful moment in getting a lot of us to understand if we didn't understand it before, that there's nothing weak about admitting that you need a break, admitting that, you know, either you're burned out or you're not in a good space. Hopefully we should, you know, welcome this and, and easily accept it, even applaud it. Um, that, you know, if you're if you're not in a, in a good space, you know, and and you need to take time off for yourself, we, you know, we should all readily, instinctively, naturally uh, embrace that kind of decision. I think we can all tell the difference between quitting, uh, you know, not not being sportsmanlike, uh, not exhibiting a sense of fair play. We can all distinguish that from self-care, you know, taking care of what matters, uh, you know, looking out for your own holistic wellness. Uh, just hopefully, you know, our sports culture is going to be very responsive to this and is actually going to become even more responsive Uh, to such decisions in the future. That does it for this episode of Upon Further Review. And until next time, learn more, share more, think more, care more.